from Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3, following through verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We're in Philippians chapter 2 doing verses actually 3, 4, and 5, and we're not going to get past that because of the magnitude of this passage, which we'll see in a moment. Um, we looked last week at the, uh, the very beginning of Philippians chapter 2, and we saw Paul reveal that if you've been here at all for these past several weeks, Philippians is just a, uh, it's a theological ocean to swim in. And just in the first chapter, in the beginning of the second, we've hit some of the most fundamental pieces of Christian theology. Uh, pieces that if you understand and realize in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live these out. You'll, you'll change the person. Um, and this morning we get to... You know, we looked at what it, Paul said, what it means to be glory-starved, why there's so much anger and strife and fighting outside the church and in the church, and Paul gives us the resolution. He said, you're all glory-starved as a result of sin, and here's Christ. Take his glory, and you won't be glory-starved anymore, and you can live as a holy people as you were supposed to live from the very beginning. And then we get to the next few verses. And if, if the Bible were various mountain ranges... And there were various peaks. This, is, this has to be one of the top three. I mean, we're, this is a Mount Everest passage. And I set out foolishly, and I mean that foolishly, to look at verses um, specifically 6 through 11, thinking I could do this in a sermon. And I realized, oh, it's going to be two. Then I realized it's going to be three. I mean, we have two choices. We do four or five hours straight. You guys all want that? Amen. Yeah, one. Okay, so Jim will stay. The rest of you will go. Or we can divide it up properly. And that's the right thing to do. When we get to a passage like this where we have Jesus Christ being identified as God, being identified as man, being identified as a suffering servant who's now exalted by God, you have huge revelations of who this God, man, suffering, exalted servant actually is. And so it behooves us to slow down, to stop. And what's so important about this Paul says, look at verse 5. Paul says, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. He's not giving us this revelation just so we can go, okay, Keith has something to preach on. We have something to listen to. He's giving us this revelation, this profound Mount Everest revelation, so we can hear it and our minds be changed by it. There's a very practical application of this theology. In fact, we can go one step further and say, if you hear this and know it but it doesn't change you, you haven't heard it and you don't know it. Because the mind is to be changed. We have, um, in football, we have a drill called the Slater drill. And two guys line up head to head on the ground. And we blow the whistle. It's a great drill for coaches. We blow the whistle, they jump up, one has the ball, and they run into each other. And there's purpose behind it. It's teaching tackling technique. But any football player who's ever done the Slater drill knows that he stands in line and he goes, one, two, three, four, oh, I'm, I'm next with that guy. And he's six four two fifty. And so he goes, and he slips back to the back of the line, right? Because he knows if he goes up against this 6'4", 250-pound guy, he's going to be laid out, right? This is a 6'4", 250-pound passage. And if we hit it head on, six, we're all going to be laid out and walk out of going, what was he talking about? So we're going to slip back in line. We're going to divide it up properly, and we're going to tackle it one piece at a time. This morning, so it talks about Jesus is God, Jesus is man, and Jesus is suffering, servant, exalted by God. This morning, we're just going to do Jesus is God. Okay, that's, we're going to get that 180 pounder that we can actually do some damage to ourselves. And this morning we're going to look at Jesus is God, three things. One, the purpose of Paul revealing this to us, and that is to change our mind. Number two, the person, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Jesus as God is God. And the third thing, the practical. What do I do with this, this theology tomorrow morning? 
What is the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday practical application of Jesus Christ as the living God? Point number one, the purpose. Paul reveals, he says, go back to verse 3. We did this last week. Paul said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. If you remember last week, that's a terrible translation for verse 5. New King James, much better, more literal, writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, the mind of Christ is somehow to be supernaturally in you as you are changed by this teaching and revelation of who he actually is. And what we get in this passage is not just that Christ is God, that Christ is man, that Christ is a suffering servant. We get into the mind of Christ. He's revealing to us, Paul is, through the Holy Spirit, what Christ thinks about who he is as God, as man, and suffering servant. So we get into the innermost thoughts of God himself. And it's very much, and I was contemplating how we do talk shows today in a a really bogus way. But, I mean, you get people that come on these talk shows and they, they open up and they say things before a studio audience, but really before millions of people. And they reveal things that you're thinking, I can't believe you're saying that on television. I mean, I'm sitting in my living room listening to that, and I can't believe you're revealing that. And the networks, they do it for sensationalism, right? They want the ratings. They want, you know, to bring this out. The revelation here, though, doesn't have that uh, profit behind it. It surely is not. God doesn't ever give us a revelation so that we can wake up Monday morning, have a cup of coffee, and gossip with, it, with our friends. The revelation, is all, it always has that distinct purpose of showing you himself... And then in that understanding and knowledge, you being changed by who he is. His very character and nature, understood by a a human being, changes that human being. Transforms them. And so that's that's why Paul says, here is the mind of Christ. Not so you can feel stupid, right? Here's the mind of Christ, here's your mind. And then you walk away feeling like you don't know anything at all. The mind of Christ is revealed for the distinct purpose that we would have the same mind, the same power, the same perspective, the same outlook on life. Who am I? Who is this holy God? How am I to live? How am I to relate as a husband to my wife, a father to my children? How am I to be a brother and sister in Christ? Transformation of character is the purpose behind this revelation. And it's a radically loving revelation because that is its distinct purpose. Not just so you can know something. Not just for another piece of information that you log into your information database, which is what we do as a culture, right? It's all about information. That's not why he's saying this. In fact, we'll look at this in a little bit. The church at Philippi, they knew, they believed this. You know this. Paul's saying it so it'll change you. It'll change you in a very real way. You've done this before in your own life. You've revealed something to someone, not just so they can have a piece of information. But you, especially if it's personal, you've revealed something to someone so they, it will change the way they think and behave, maybe towards you. You know, where you, you reveal something that's, that's serious or personal or intimate. When Lori and I first got married, Lori revealed to me that she had a, a phobia, which I was not aware of. She gave me permission to share this, so don't all look at Lori. I was like, oh, here it goes. <laughs> Story time on the wife. <laughs> she has a fear of flying. Now, that was problematic for me since I love to fly and I was doing a lot of flying at the time, right? And so after she expressed this to me, we had, I I understood her better why every time we get in the airplane, she'd be like, (gasps) you know, that white knuckle effect. But after she talked to me about it, then I said, okay, it changed how I approached her, especially with it going, come on, get in the airplane versus, okay. So I talked to her about it. I explained, you know, how and why airplanes fly. I explained to her the safety procedures involved in a pilot being good in, you know, not only his proficiency, but the aircraft. I explained to her that being 5,000 feet in a general aviation aircraft is much safer than traveling 75 on 17 going to Santa Cruz, right? You gave her that whole thing. Well, as phobias go, those, that generally doesn't work. You know that, right? Phobias are inherent irrational. And so, but I was being very patient and moving through this, and I got this great, terrible idea that, you know, if I'm going to fly in the future with my wife, it would be wise for her to get what's called a safety certificate. And that is, for non-pilots who fly with pilots in small aircraft, they can get a little certificate that essentially teaches them how to get on the radio and say, help, or, you know, get a hold of the aircraft and make a, a landing and not kill themselves, right? It's minimal hours, I think like 10 hours. And I thought, this is great. So if I keel over in the cockpit, 
she'll be able to land the airplane, or maybe it'll just give her a greater sense of security in the aircraft knowing how to actually do some flying. So our first lesson out, we started, and I take her up, and we start going through, you know, I did some pre-flight stuff and some groundwork, and I started explaining to her, you know, she has her hand on the stick, and we're going through the motions, and she, she said to me, you know, um, she said, have you ever, you know those people when you stand at the edge, you ever had that feeling when you stand at the edge of a cliff, and you look off and you want to jump? And I said, yeah, I, I don't have that feeling myself ever, but I know people that do. And she said, I have that right now. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, I want to take the stick and I want to run it forward and grind us into the ground. <laughs> and so I said, okay, dear. <laughs> take your beautiful God-given hands off the stick. <laughs> right? We're done with lesson number one. We're done with this whole process. <laughs> changed the way her revelation to me changed how I saw her, how I responded to her. That was the end of our flight lessons. Um, the teaching is this, though. The revelation giving to, given to us by God that we give to one another personally is not just to have information. We can't just approach it like we do gathering information um, today via databases. It is to change who we are. And so this revelation, when Paul says, Jesus Christ is God, you can't just go, hmm, interesting. It's supposed to have a real, immediate impact on you. Change your mind. Change the way you think. Change the way you behave. Not slamming the stick in the airplane to run yourself on the ground, right? Change. So that's the purpose, number one. Number two, this guy, this person, this man, Jesus Christ, the incarnate God. Now, most of you are not going to say, you know what, this is new to me. And it's not going to be. But by God's grace, it will be made new to you by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. In verse 6, Paul says, Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God. This has to be, unequivocally, one of the most powerful statements to the divinity of Jesus Christ in all of sacred scripture. It is is a Christological masterpiece in what it's revealing about Christ. When he says, he is in the very nature God, the Greek word is, you'll know, it's morph. It's change. Now, there's a problem with that. It's a perfect word. But when we translate morph into English, you're probably thinking of your physiology class. Remember the ectomorph and the mesomorph and the, the ectomorph, was that? Or endomorph, ectomorph, mesomorph. You got, you know, the, the, the buffed one and the skinny one and the more robust one. And so we think of external. We think of, um, of outside appearance. But there's another Greek word for that, and it's, it's schema, schemata. And that is like, like a... Um, an electrical schematic, if you've ever seen that, where it shows you, you know, what the electrical layout is for a building or a car or an airplane. Um, that's a much better word. Morph, they translate it in the NIV nature, which is perfect. Morph means internal characteristics. The parts of something that make the something who it is or what it is. And so when Paul is saying here that, that Jesus Christ is in the very nature of God, he is saying the very essence The qualities that make Jesus Christ who Jesus Christ is, is God. 100%. Complete, total. In fact, it's much stronger than Paul saying Jesus is God. Many of you say, well, why couldn't he just say that? I mean, why do we have to get into morph and schema and nature and essence? Can't he just say it? He could. But other people claim that. I mean, surely McLean claims to be God, Right? When David Koresh said, I am God, I am Jesus Christ again, it it meant something entirely different. And what Paul's saying here is so much higher than that. Because what he's saying is, Jesus has the identical quality. Are you listening? The identical same characteristics that make God, God. And therefore, he's not fashioned in the image of God. He is God. All the qualities, all the power, all the majesty, all the presence, the omniscience, all the glory, all the honor as creator of all that is seen and unseen. This is who he is. You say, so what? Jesus Christ, 100% God. Not half God, half man. And this is a huge debate, right, in the early church. Who is he? 100% God. Flawlessly having the character and nature of God himself because he is God. There, the Graf Diamond Company has a diamond called the Paragon Diamond. It's 137 carats. Ladies, don't ask your husbands for that as an engagement ring. It is a seven-sided diamond 
that is flawless. It has zero inclusions. Now, I've seen pictures of it. I've never seen it in person, obviously. And it's one of those you look at and you just turn and you look at. It's phenomenal. It's worth, though, about $20 million. It's considered a perfect, flawless gemstone. Now, you say that $20 million, that's, that's some serious value. It's a diamond. Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, is the 100% flawless creator. He's 100% without inclusion, without diminishing quality, God himself. We have a, a $20 million gem that came out of the earth. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone who came out of heaven to the earth. And he's worth infinitely more than a $20 million diamond. And Paul's saying that here. You've got to get it. He is in the very nature God. He is God himself. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. Look at verse 6. He did not consider equality, equality with God something to be grasped. Now that word grasped there in the Greek literally means to be held on to. And what we do here, unfortunately, is we read this like this. We read it and say, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to go after or to strive for, to grasp for, to reach for. But that's the wrong translation. Better. Jesus did, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, to keep. In other words, Jesus Christ, who is fully God, flawlessly God, gave up voluntarily his godly Qualities, the power, the majesty. He became a man. We'll look at that next week. So what he had, he gave up to become a man. Not he was reaching for, striving for, trying to get. He had it completely and he relinquished it. He gave it up in coming to earth. And that means this. Paul was no demagogue. During the, during the time that he was here, the Greeks, the Roman, the Eastern people, they, they, had, they could make an understanding between the eternal God and earthly creatures. This jump was made quite often. If you read, read Greek mythology, you see that, where the God makes all these little demagogues and gives them power. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a complete, eternal, holistic God, Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ himself in John 14, you guys know this, he's telling the disciples he's got to go. He said, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to die on the cross, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again, and after 40 days I'm going to ascend to heaven. He's telling them this. And they're, they're a bit frazzled, right? They're a bit bent out of shape. Say, what do you mean you're going to leave us? He says, yes, I'm going to leave you. Thomas says this. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said in verse 6 of John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. Listen to this. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you know the Father, you know me. If you know me, you know the Father. Philip, he's still a bit confused and a little bit frustrated, so he continues. He says, Lord, okay, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Christ, broken in this statement, says, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I've been among you such a long time, Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And he says, how can you say, show us the Father? He's saying, the Father and I, we're one. If you know me, you know the Father. We're one. In essence, I'm God. Now, there's one other aspect of this passage, which is usually blown right by, that gives us this revelation at the, the pinnacle height that Jesus Christ is God. The passage itself, not so much as what is being said, but the passage in as a package, verses 6 through 11. The way that people get out of this today... The way that I used to get out of this, and a lot of, a lot of younger people, before they come to a saving grace, if they come to a saving grace, they say, you know what, this is, this is typical myth creation, right? This has all the, the patterns that follow it. Jesus Christ was a good man, he was a good teacher, he probably, you know, did some things that people claimed to be miraculous, even though there were natural explanations for it. He was a rabbi, and, and he died, and then after several years and a few generations, the stories about him got bigger and bigger, and as the story moved out of Jerusalem and to Judea and into the Mediterranean, more people talked about it, and we created a Jesus into a God. Myth creation, right? Legends. Now, to get under, that's, that's an easy way to get out of the claim. I don't want the weight of Jesus Christ being God so I can add a myth approach to it and then I can say, well, there's no way that happened. There's some real problems with that. Number one, Jesus Christ claimed to be God in his earthly ministry. 
Number two, the disciples who followed him, especially after the resurrection of his, of his body from the dead, claimed him to be God. In addition to the 500 witnesses over the 40 days that he appeared to them in resurrected form. But there's something else here about this passage that's extraordinary. And almost all the Bible students and scholars agree. Listen. Verses 6 through 11, they believe were not written by the Apostle Paul. Now when you look at this, and you see, in most, I don't know about your Bible, it's set off as a quote. Now whether or not it's written by Paul is irrelevant, but listen. It's quoted, right? And they also, you know what, it's, it's, it has all the characteristics of, of poetry or a creed or a confessional. And there's reasons for that. There's parallelism, there's rhyme, there's, uh, uh, there's uh, lexical uh, points throughout. And the scholar is saying, listen, he's quoting an earlier writing, very likely a, a hymn or a doctrinal confession by the church. You say, so what? What's the big deal? Either he wrote or did. Here's the big deal. Paul was writing this letter within about 20 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so not only is he writing it within a time period that the contemporaries of Christ would be able to argue against his claim that Jesus is actually God, but even more so, he's using these verses, probably from an earlier time, an earlier writing, right up to years within Christ, that the church had already accepted, that the hearers at Philippi would know and say, yes, this is who he is. Taking the claims of Jesus Christ back to within years of his death and resurrection. So what does that mean? It absolutely destroys the potential for myth creation. Myth creation takes decades or centuries. Why? Paul writes this. He says to the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi has people that say, no, no, no. We were there. We were in Jerusalem. That's not what he taught. That's not what he said. That's not what the disciples said. He never claimed to be God. They could have refuted the entire testimony that Jesus Christ was God, just like that. The entire movement would have come to a screeching halt. But it didn't. Why? Because many were there, and many said Christ did say that. He did claim to be God. The disciples claimed it as well. Within this generation, within 20 years, they said, yes, we know. But even more extraordinary, the Jews, as a people were the last people on the face of the planet that would have accepted the idea that an almighty, eternal, transcendent creator would become a man. You realize that? The the Greeks, yeah. The Romans, yeah. The men of the Eastern philosophies, yeah, great. God, man, nature, mixing together. Boof, there you go, God, man. But not the Jews. The last people. Do you know what that means? Imagine the life that Christ must have lived in their presence. To have persuaded so many Jews to see him as God. Imagine his teaching. Imagine the miracles. Imagine the consistency in character year after year amongst the people who would say, there's no way that God can become a man. Imagine what happened on that, that last week, that Passion Week, and on the cross, and in the tomb, and then the resurrection. It must have been extraordinary. Because they came to, they came to believe The last people on the face of the earth, they came to believe that Jesus Christ indeed is God. And so, when someone came along and said, no, he didn't say, no, he was. We know, he's not a demagogue, equal to God. The uncreated creator, Jesus Christ. That's who he was, that's who he is. We knew him in his ministry like that, we knew him in his death, and we know him in his resurrection. Jesus Christ is God. You say, okay, now you've spent 15 minutes on that. Tell me something I already know. Why are you telling me what I already know? I already believe this. When I came to a saving grace in Christ, I came to this understanding. Why is Paul telling this to the church at Philippi? Why am I spending any time on it? Why? Because we believe it. But we don't really believe it. I mean, you're, if you're a Christian, you've been in the church, you, you know, you're orthodox. Yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity. This is who he is. Right? You may be launching the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed and tell me you know, who he was. He was born of the Virgin Mary and he became man. Right? He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. This is who he is. But do you know who he is? This revelation must, if you get it, change your mind, change the way you think, change your character. And if it does not have that impact, listen, if you can say, listen, I believe that but it doesn't change me. It doesn't change the way I think or live or speak or feel or respond or relate. Then you don't understand it. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. That's why he's saying the church at Philippi. You get it, but you don't get it. We understand it, but we don't understand it. This morning, if you leave here saying, Jesus is God, cool. You don't get it. If you leave here saying, Jesus is God, that means it changes everything. Then you get it. It changes everything. How so? Last point. Ready? The practical Monday morning. If the primary purpose is to captivate your mind and change your heart and change who you are as a person, the primary purpose, there there are three things. There are actually many, but there were three that came to mind in light of this passage that should change you tomorrow, change you this afternoon. The revelation that Jesus Christ is God should bring great joy and optimism into your life. It should bring great sobriety into your life. Not in terms of physical, but that applies as well. And it should bring a change in the dynamic of how we relate and love one another. A joy, a sobriety, and relationships. Let's look at the first quickly. This revelation of Jesus Christ as God should infuse in you a sense of hope and optimism and joy unlike any other truth revealed. I don't care what it is. That truth in your life should change how you see life. So here, for you, my, my cynical... Listen, listen, usually the cynical people like this going, come on. Okay, so just pick your head up for a minute. Let me see your eyes. The cynical, pessimistic, you know, doomsday sort of, I get in a car accident, my life is over. My meal's cold, my life is over. You know, I didn't do well on the test, and my girlfriend broke up with me, and I can't pay for gas because it's five bucks a gallon. You know, you get sideways and stay sideways. Listen, okay, those of you who are in that category. If Jesus Christ is God... And Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross. And as a result of that, he poured out his grace on you. He showed himself to you. You confessed your sins. You repent. You turn. You came to him. He brought you there. And now you're following him. If he is truly Lord and Savior and lover and King and friend of your life, and this is God, then that means you have everything. You have everything now. And you have everything to hope for in the future. You lack nothing now. And you lack nothing in the future. Now, that's, that's great news. That's fully optimistic, right? Radically joyful, change my life, Monday morning news. If you see him as God, if this is Jesus Christ, God saying to you, I love you, I called you, I redeemed you, I find you radiant, I find you beautiful, I'm calling you into my kingdom to serve and reign with me. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I mean, if this is real, then that God is the one in your life that should bring optimism and joy on a moment-by-moment, Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday basis, right? And that means you can't say, you can't say, oh, I can't overcome this habit, this sin. Phooey. Right? You can't say that person will never change. I mean, look, you can't say that. Why? Because if they know Christ, who is God, then they have the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit to do all things through Him who strengthens us. There's nothing. There's no sin. There's no habit. There's no relationship so broken that in Christ there isn't hope. Real hope. Not, oh, I hope, I I wish real hope with power behind it. Jesus said in Matthew 13, listen. Some of you are not buying it. I can see the cynical faces going, "Mm mm-hmm. Listen, Jesus was trying to convey in Matthew 13 the very real, when I say real, realistic optimism and realistic joy every believer should have. Without exception. This is what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a, man, when a man found it, he hid it, and then in his joy, what did he do? He went and he sold all that he had, and he bought the field. He had the ultimate treasure. He continues in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and he bought it. The pearl of great price, that eternal treasure, that is Christ. And if you know him as Lord and Savior, you have him. You have God. You have the ultimate treasure. You have the pearl of great price. You got it. You have it. What if I told you before the service that I took $10 million and I hid it in the nursery area? No, listen. It was a gift, right, to me, and I'm gifting it back. And I hid $10 million 
And the first person to find it gets to keep it. How many of you would make it to the rest of the service? Hmm? How many would you, would you stay right here? Because you say, you know what? That $10 million would be really nice. But I, I have someone infinitely more valuable than that $10 million. I have someone more valuable than money or power or success or prestige that the money can buy. I have him. So I'm not going to scramble out of here because you're talking about my real treasure. You're talking about my real pearl. You keep talking. And when you're done, then I'll go get the money. Right? <laughs> Jesus Christ is saying, listen, if you have me, you have infinitely more than all the things that you think you need to make yourself joyful. Whatever it is, and we all, got, we all have the, the idols we chase after. If I just had that marriage, or I just had that number of kids, or if I just had that job with that salary and that title. He says, you already have me. You have reason for eternal hope and eternal optimism. Your future is infinitely bright. I mean, do you ever wonder, if you're reading through the book of Romans, and in, in the 8th chapter, we get to the Apostle Paul talking about himself. He's talking about us in light of it. And he's got this ridiculous, over-the-top sense of optimism. I mean, he basically says, I, I'm not afraid of anything. Right? He says, I'm not afraid of death, nor life. I'm not afraid of angels or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Right? No created, no power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything. Anything. And then he goes on, he says, what, what, what am I afraid of? I'm not afraid of any trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword. Nothing. Where, where does he get that? And he tells us, he says, listen, if God's for me, if God's on my side, if I have fellowship with God, then who could be against me? I've already won. If the creator of all that is seen and unseen, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, is my guy, my man, my savior, and he said, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, that nothing will separate me from this love, I have everything. Everything. And so Paul, in the midst of great persecution and great hardship, is ridiculously optimistic and filled with joy. And Jesus says, you can have that too, because that's who I am to you. Now, if you say, you know what? When I hear about Jesus Christ being God, it doesn't infuse me with a sense of joy and hope and optimism. Then you're not thinking, right? There's supposed to be a change of mind here. A trans- you're not thinking. I mean, you may be going, yeah, I get it, and I'll, and I'll do the doxology, and I'll say the hymn, but I don't get it. It's supposed to change the way you think. It's supposed to captivate your heart. And have you see people differently and relate to people differently and be a different employee or employer or student or son or daughter or husband or wife. Change the way you think. Second thing, ready? Knowing Jesus Christ as God will not only bring great joy and optimism, but boy, it'll bring sobriety in a very real, immediate way. How so? If Jesus Christ is God, if he's God, as this confession Reveals as he revealed, as his disciples revealed, then the only reasonable response to this revelation is an extreme response. Did you hear me? If Jesus Christ is God, and you hear that and you say yes, the only right response is an extreme response. What do I mean? John Stott, in Basic Christianity, a book I read years ago, he said, if you read the Bible, you will see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. And it's, it's true. Go back and read the Gospels. You don't see people meeting Christ and going, yeah, he's all right. There's no moderate response. There were three responses. They hated him, and therefore they tried to kill him. They saw, they heard, and they were afraid, and they tried to flee. Or the last was what? They were smitten by him. They were, they were overcome by him. They were taken by, listen, saints, they were taken by his power, his majesty, his beauty, his gentleness. They were taken by And they did what? They sold everything and they followed him. And those are the three right responses. You, you want to kill him because you hate him. You're afraid of him so you run. Or you follow him because you're overwhelmed with who he is and his presence and his power and his love. You know what that means? I mean, and Stott's right. That's it. That means you don't just like Jesus. And we got a real problem then in our culture. You get 84%, supposedly 84% of the popular culture that like Jesus. 
They like him. They take his name. They say, what are you? I'm a Christian. So they actually identify themselves saying, they like him. But this passage is saying, Paul is saying, Stott is saying, you can't like Jesus. No one can like Jesus. C.S. Lewis made it even better. He said, listen, if Christ isn't God, if Jesus is not God, 100%, and you follow him and you like him, you're out of your mind. Because if he's not God, then what he said makes him an absolute schizophrenic lunatic, and no one should follow that. Your other option is, he knew he wasn't God and said he was God, and therefore he's a pathological liar, in which case you shouldn't follow that either. Right? So it's either hate him, flee from him, or worship him. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Jesus Christ is God, and therefore the only right response is an extreme response of obedience and submission and following and love and adoration and praise and worship. That's it. There's no other right response. There's no other intelligent response. If you respond any other way, you're not thinking. Right? You can't like Jesus and not submit to him. Hate him. Run from him. Or worship him. Extreme response. And that means this. That he will become for you your life. And everything will revolve around your worship of him. How will it change your thinking? It will change the way you approach your marriage. It'll change the way you are a steward of your money. It'll change the way you raise your children. If he is God, and you are submitting and following him out of loving obedience because of the grace poured out on the cross, then everything will change. You can't like Jesus. So the news is both good news, it's both sobering news, and lastly, and we'll close on this, the news changes, or ought to, I should say, the way we relate and love one another. If Jesus Christ is God then it should change the way, dramatically and dynamically, how we relate and love one another. How so? If you've checked out, check back in. Because I've got I to swim in the pool of the Trinity here for a little bit. And you can't swim in shallow waters in the Trinity. Okay? I'm not going to go into a huge theological diatribe explain it. But listen, you've got to get this. If Jesus Christ is God, okay, and we believe in a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that means Jesus Christ is part, was part of this dynamic, relational, loving being. For all eternity, before anything was ever created, right? Last week, we ended the service with a doxology hymn. Do you remember that? We're going to do that more often. I love it. The last line is, praise him, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Now, you can't just, you can't just read that and go, yeah, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, it makes sense. The Trinity, really? One God? And within that one God, three eternally distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's what we believe. We're not polytheistic and we're not strictly monotheistic. We're monotheistic with three distinct eternal personalities, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the one Godhead. Augustine wrote voluminously on the Trinity. And there was one point that I remember reading and studying years ago that he brought up that just hit me and he said this. If you don't believe in a Trinitarian God, then you have a defective God. I'm like, wow, that's, that's a pretty dogmatic statement. He said, if you don't believe in a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then whatever God you believe in is a defective God. And this was his reasoning. He's right on. He said, because any God that's not relational in nature, any God that does not have the ability to re- relate within the Godhead is defective because that God cannot love until that God creates. Are you still with me? What he's saying is this. A strictly monotheistic God, like the God of Judaism or the God of Islam, which rejects the Trinity, says that God could not and did not love until God created man, angels, something to love, to express love and be loved by. And that means this. If God is not Trinitarian nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there was no eternal personalities in which they could relate and love one another for all eternity. And that means God was loveless without love before he created. Now, Augustine goes even further. He says, not only is your God defective, but don't you realize what you're saying? That he had to create us to be loved. He was a loveless God. He was a God with need. And therefore, his creating man and his creating angels was for the purpose of fulfilling his own need, to get something out of us, to use us. Why do we worship God? So that he can be loved because he needs to be loved. Once again, Augustine says, Fooey, no way. This God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that means this. And this is only, by the way, 
One of the unique marks of Christianity. Only Christianity professes a Trinitarian understanding of God. He said only Christianity enables us to see God as inherently loving in himself before he ever created. You know what that means? That means before anything ever was, you had the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit loving each other, expressing love, receiving love. Love is inherent in who God is. And therefore, he said, what a go in theology. That means that he created us not to be loved, but to express his love. He created us not because he had this, this vacuous need to be worshipped and loved and adored, but to share it, to express it. God was fully satisfied and completely sufficient in his being before he ever created. So the only reason he created was to bring us in to enjoy the radical outpouring of his glory and love and majesty. That's extraordinary. God doesn't use us. He doesn't need us. But he wants us. And he wants us to participate in this radical love affair. So how does that impact my relationship? It's Trinitarian. I'm not part of the Trinity. Well, actually, in Christ, you are. Why? In our glory-starved states, we looked at last week, in, apart from Christ, when you move into relationships, it doesn't matter what kind it is. It can be husband-wife. It can be parent-child. It can be friend, boyfriend-girlfriend. When you move into that relationship as a glory-starved creature, you move into it as a sinful creature to get something out of the person, not to give. It's not other-centered, naturally. I mean, let's be real transparent. Think about your M.O. going into most relationships. Why? I mean, if you went into a relationship with the cool kid in the block or the, or the, or the most popular kids at school, why? It's because you really wanted to love them and nurture them and grow them or because you wanted to be part of that group? I mean, why did you go after the most beautiful girl or the, or the best-looking guy? Why? Because you, you, you said, well, there's someone who could really need some love and affection or look... Look, right? To get something out to use. But if Jesus Christ is God, and he is and was part of the Trinity forever and ever, that means that when he came, he didn't come to use us. He came to pour out his blessings on us and to love us. Not because he needed us, because he wanted to. And that changes everything. Because that means that Jesus came for the distinct purpose of saving mankind, redeeming mankind, loving mankind, bringing mankind back to the place before the fall. And it was all about us to him. It was agape love. It was other-centered love. And with that, we can then, being brought in with Christ, we can share that too. Because here's the problem. If you do not come into a saving grace with Jesus Christ and you're not brought into that Trinitarian love, then when you move out into relationships, you will move out to use people and get what you need, not satisfy their needs. It'll be all about you, what you want and what you need. And maybe some of you do this right now. You enter relationships. Okay, so let's be real subtle here. Ask yourself this. How do you respond to someone, when you've gone out of your way to love them, to nurture them, to counsel them, to care for them, and th- there's no positive response back. Or maybe you're snubbed. Maybe they, they take your gift of love and they do something, they say something bad about you, they start slamming your name. How do you respond? Are you bent out of shape because they didn't give back? I mean, do you get upset? How do you respond? Are you the type of person that, that goes into relationships trying to manipulate people? You say, no, not consciously. Let me ask you this. Are you the type of person that that uses the silent treatment in your relationships? Hmm? The relationship isn't going well, so what do you do? Hmm, I'll get real quiet. What are you doing? You're manipulating them, right? Or maybe you're the type that uses subtle bribery. Subtle bribery, because overt bribery, bribery is easily seen. So you subtly bribe people. What kind of relationship is that? That's not the mind of Christ. That's not Christ driven. That's not Trinitarian. That's all about you. When my boys were little, it was a time when action figures were big. And I don't know if they still are. I haven't been to a store looking at that. But it was big back then. And it was all the superheroes. You had Batman. I mean, you had Superman. You had uh, Spider-Man. Batman, he was, he was the guy in our house, right? Brandon and Kirk, they wanted every version of every Batman super figure. And they came in these little, I don't know, six, seven-inch guys. And they always had different masks and characters and weaponry and things like that. So when the boys would get money for their birthday or Christmas, they'd want to go to the store and get a new 
Batman, right? And so we take them both, and we get there. And, of course, Brandon, who was the younger brother, always wanted what Kirk was going to get, right? And Kirk, being the older brother, hated it when Brandon would pick the same thing he wanted, right? So there was always this constant battle going place. So we go to the store, and they'd sit there in the aisle, and they'd look, and they'd look, and they'd look. And Brandon would look and look at Kirk, and he'd look, and he'd look at Kirk. And finally, Kirk would go, this is the one I want. I go, I want that one, too, right? And Kirk would go, and so they go back and forth. This great dialogue would ensue. And this is how it worked. Kirk would say to Brandon, Brandon, you don't want that Batman. Look. And he pulled another one. I says, look at this Batman. This Batman comes with a gappling hook. This Batman comes with a motorcycle that transfigures and transforms into a snowmobile. This Batman. And so Brandon would look at it and he goes, yeah, that's good. I like that. No, I want this one. Right? And then he'd go back again. He'd go, but Brandon, look at this. And if you were an innocent bystander, you'd say, look at that kid. Look at how much he loves his little brother. He wants him to have the absolute best Batman. But you'd be fooled because it was five-year-old manipulation. He was using Brandon, trying desperately to get Brandon to do something that Brandon did not want to do. And in the end, Brandon almost always chose what Kirk chose, Right? He entered the relationship, not out of Brandon's best interest, but out of his best interest, even though it appeared loving. Here's the bottom line. If you say to yourself, how do I do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? How do I, in humility, consider others better than myself? How do I look not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others? This sounds impossible. The answer is the Trinity. The answer is Jesus Christ is God. How so? Jesus Christ, through the gospel of grace, came to earth as God. He lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And then he imparts to you his glory, his majesty, his love. And what he does is he opens the door back into communion with the Trinitarian God. And do you know what that means? That means those who are truly saved by grace come back into a right relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means that you can, for the first time in your life, receive your identity not from your work, but from the living God. Not from your marriage, but from the living God. Not from your money or your power or your success, but from the Trinitarian living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means you have a love already. That means you have acceptance already. You have His glory already. And that means you can go out. Being in the communion of the Trinity, you're in the inner circle with Christ because of the work of Christ. You can now go out and be an older brother who does not try to manipulate his younger brother. You can go out and be a husband or a wife that loves the husband or wife not to use them, but to truly care for them and nurture them. You can be a friend. Listen, friends, who doesn't get all bent out of shape the moment your relationship is a little sideways. You can be a friend who's there in the good times and the bad and and love that person for who they are and sacrifice and serve just as Christ did. Why? Because you are inside the inner circle of God himself. But if you don't come through the gospel door, if you don't come through the cross into the Trinitarian love, then every time you go out, it'll always be for you. It'll always, and it, will be, it will may, may look as though it's for the other, but it'll always be for you. It may be for your esteem. It may be so people can say, look at how nice that person is. Look at their time. Look at their money. But it'll always be about you. And in the end, those relationships are always destroyed. But if you come in through the cross, through Jesus Christ, and you come into the relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, recognizing Jesus as God, then it changes everything. And your relationship with people will change as well. Because you will have a dynamic, a power, a love to share and engage people that is truly godly. It's truly other-centered. Imagine an entire church being so captivated with the revelation that Jesus Christ is God. And he's our Lord and he's our Savior. And therefore we have a love that prevents us from being so needy and so pathetic and so, oh, I need the attention. That we can engage people and love people. In Christ, I I think about it and I pray about it and it's extraordinary. This would be such an other-centered place that the glory of God would resound. People can say, what is going on here? Why aren't they bickering? Why aren't they backbiting? Why aren't they trying to do what's in their own best interest? Why are they serving? Why are they loving? Why are they giving? Where is this coming from? And we will say, Jesus Christ is God. 
If you're fatally optimistic, if you're fatally optimistic, come on, my pessimist, I'll raise your hand inside your heart. Me? Okay, you know who you are. You can't be fatally optimistic and know that Jesus Christ is God if he's your Lord and Savior. If you like Jesus, you don't know him as God. You can't just like Jesus. If your relationships primarily... You know, we're not God, so when we serve, there'll be gratification in serving. But if your primary motivation for engaging people relationally is to get something out of them, to use them, to meet your needs and not theirs, then you don't know Christ as God. You don't. You can say it, but you don't. Having Jesus, who is God, as your Lord and Savior, ushers in a power that changes your mind. That's why Paul starts off verse 5. Have the mind of Christ. It'll change who you are. It'll change everything. A lyric this week from a song I was listening to. The musician writes, Living, Christ loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, glorious day. Do you see and understand the radical work of this Jesus God on the cross. Do you see it? Do you see that he, in living the perfect life, he loved you? In dying the death, he saved you. In being buried, he carried your sins far away. Do you see that in rising, he justified you freely, a gift forever? Do you see that one day he's coming? And do you say, with great optimism and great hope and great joy, oh, what a day, oh, what a day, oh, what a day? If so, then you know Christ as God and you have the mind. Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for being a people ultra-pessimistic, lacking hope, lacking joy, liking Christ, but not submitting all of who we are, relating to one another out of need rather than desire to give and serve and love. I pray this morning, Father, that you would captivate our minds, that you would change our hearts, that we would become a people filled with your glory. That we would see ourselves as those brought into the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. That we would see ourselves as being completely satisfied. That we lack nothing. That we're not a needy people. But instead, because of who we are in Christ, because we have been received and we have been brought in and we have everything, that we can then move out and we can relate to one another We can relate to members of our family. We can relate to strangers in this community. Not to use them. Not to have our needs met, but to meet theirs. To love them. Sacrificially. I pray that would be the case for this church. That you would give us such an immediate presence of your Son, who is God. And the communion we have with the Father and Holy Spirit in the Trinity because of his work. That we would be a people that display that glory and that love sacrificially. Change our hearts and our minds this morning. That we might be that people that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. Make this revelation stick in such a way that it changes. Every single one of us in Christ's name. Amen.